Hi everybody, this is another re-released episode of the First Intuition Student Podcast. In our earlier episodes, myself and Dave both came on as almost guests of our own podcast. We were aware that the listeners possibly didn't know us or didn't know our backstory. And so we came on and shared with each other our educational background, how we got into accounting and how we've latterly got into the roles of tutors and directors for First Intuition. Dave, what do you remember about the backstory episodes that myself and you recorded? I remember after kind of both of them realising that um, kind of you and I had similar experiences in terms of the reasons that we became teachers and the reasons we moved into into the work that we do, which shouldn't really be a surprise as we're kind of both roughly the same age, grew up in the same kind of neighbourhood, had the same kind of background and um, you know have ended up where we are now. You'd probably expect you to have the same kind of kind of story. Um, the thing that I really appreciated was when when we went through kind of my my backstory, my origin story was um, that a lot of things that I talked about, it was the first time I'd actually talked about them with a person before, because um, th- there are lots of things that were kind of very personal to me, lots of things that I'd internalised, things that I had actually written about because I found it easier to write about things than uh, I do to actually talk about things. So it was actually quite a cathartic process to kind of go through uh, a lot of those things that happened to me earlier on. Um, one thing that I, I do know though is that we did talk that I think after both of our episodes that there may well be a part two um, that we would that we would do kind of following up on where it left which we've never got round to Ben so I think at some point we need to need to do part two or maybe do a, a kind of like a team up like an Avengers style team up where you're Captain America I'm Iron Man and we're going to get together for some massive adventure to then talk about how where life's taken us since we joined forces at First Intuition. I'm loving the Marvel references. Dave always talks to guests about their backstory, their origin story, as if it was the first 20 minutes of their their superhero movie. So a nice tie in there. I really like the personal nature of the podcast. Myself and Dave are genuine, and I hope that comes across to people that are listening I certainly felt doing these two episodes with each other brought me and you closer together. We've worked together for a while, but I think it took our relationship to a a much more personal level. We realised we'd got shared interests and shared backgrounds that we hadn't even unearthed from each other in our time together at that point. Um, It means I can genuinely call you a friend and a mate, and I I love that, and our, our families interact from time to time, which is fantastic to see. So, I want to use this as a chance to thank you, Dave, for joining me on the forum every week. For guys that are new to First Intuition, this will give you a good introduction to myself and Dave. We go live every Wednesday on the student forum. They're going to be starting off now really, really soon. When we're re-releasing this, we are now literally days away from the first live episode. So look out for links to register for them. Please come and join us and please come and share in mine and Dave's future stories which we will evolve as we go through further episodes of the podcast. Thank you all very much. Tonight, we're going to do it a bit differently. We've obviously had some guests on and we've got some fantastic guests lined up for future weeks and future episodes. But me and Dave had a bit of a chat and realised that a lot of people that are listening to us probably don't know too much about us as individuals. 
our background, how we got where we are at the moment as directors and tutors for First Intuition. So I thought this evening would be a good opportunity, Dave, if you don't mind, that we can find a bit more about you, get yep. some of your background, find out about some of your influences, what got you to where you are today, some of the lessons you've learned along the way. And I, I'm sure we're in for a few funny stories as, as we go through. So if that's all right, I'm going to play interviewer, but I'll, I'll, I'll let you kind of go and, and relive your journey into yep. um, to becoming a director and a tutor at First Intuition. So for those of you who are regular listeners and have joined our question and answer sessions since the start of lockdown, you'll know David a bit of a maths guru. You've been running some math sessions that I know a few of you have probably attended. But I didn't really realise until me and Dave were having a chat just quite how proficient at maths Dave is. Obviously, being an accountant, maths is um, a vital skill, not, not something that needs to be massively, massively technical at the level that I teach, certainly. But, but Dave, you always loved maths at school. Would you say it was your favourite subject? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, 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 it's something that I, numbers are, are always something that I, I could work with, work with. I'm kind of like fascinated by kind of like puzzles and working out puzzles and solving problems and solving problems with numbers. And at, at school, I found maths really easy. Um, and it, it was, you know, my, my method of learning for, or, or, or understanding something was really straightforward somewhat my, my teacher showed me how to do something i did it once and then i'd learned it and it was really really straightforward so someone showed me how to do a simultaneous equation you know they showed me on the board i did an example could i do it as soon as i could do it that was it it was learned so i just found maths very very easy very straightforward um and you know it, it's yeah something that that yeah came far easier to me than say something like english which was a completely different ball game was, was it the exact nature, that the logic of it, that just, it's, it's almost like learning a language or being able to play an instrument. I think that stuff comes naturally to some people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was, it's, for me, it's, it's, you know, the way that my, my brain works is, you know, uh, uh, quite logical. Um, you know, so I love things like puzzles. And the thing that I loved about maths, you know, particularly at school, was even if you got something that was difficult, I could write it down, I could write down what was going on in a piece of paper. And it's something that I still do now when I'm teaching is, you know, uh, first thing I want to do is if someone's struggling with something, I want to write a problem on a piece of paper and illustrate what's going on. Um, you know, and, you know, as I think, you know, one of our, our audience um, mentioned a couple of weeks ago that, you know, when I'm teaching things like company cars, I'll draw up a picture of a car. So, you know, I'm very visual in terms of drawing up problems and things like that. So, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, something that I like and something that I found really straightforward. You're right, that logical nature to it. So topical, obviously tomorrow is release of A-level results, but I presume you did do A-level maths when, when you were at school in sixth form college? Yep, did A-level maths um, and yeah, really straightforward. Um, or I found it relatively straightforward. I, I was kind of that kid in the class that tended to want to be the centre of attention. 
So, you know, I, I did tend to kind of like mess around quite a bit in classes. Um, I tended to make it my aim, particularly with one of my maths teachers, who if I ever see her, I will apologise to Miss Elia, um, because I, I made it my aim really to try and keep her talking for as long as possible so we didn't need to do anything in her classes. So <laughs> one lesson, I think we got about half an hour in and I was still asking her questions about her upcoming wedding before she realised that she hadn't taught anything that day. Um, and and I, I think that, you know, from that point of view, I think a lot of people um, thought I was a bit of a joker and didn't realise that I was actually quite good at it. And I remember particularly a chap called Nathan in my class who thought he was very clever, um, was really upset that I got an A and he didn't at A-Level Maths because he thought, you can't get an A because you mess around all the time. And I sit quietly and do all the work and I don't. So I now feel a little bit bad for him. <laughs> but um, it, it's something that I think that I've always kind of almost like because of that almost had a bit of a chip on my shoulder that I'm going to show someone if they think I can't do it it makes me more determined to go and do it. That very subtle throwaway in there that you just got an A at A-level maths that's quite quite a big achievement you didn't open with that you threw it in right at the end but well done an A and A-level well, maths. It goes downhill after them then. Be very proud of. And I can already see, knowing you, knowing what you're like in the classroom, the kind of core elements of, of what makes you a, a great tutor that you are, and I'm going to make you blush now, but obviously technically competent, and an A and A level maths proves that, doesn't it? But also the ability to talk, to communicate, and to almost be seen as a bit of an entertainer. We do try and make classes quite lighthearted, and not to the point that we're messing around. So I can see all of this coming together very nicely with where you are, but obviously yep. post A-level, you went off to university. Yeah, I, mean, I guess, you know, kind of before that, there's, I, I, I speak to quite a lot of um, kind of school kids at the moment to kind of help them with careers advice. And I, I say that I always tell them there's, there's three subjects that prepared me best for my job at school. One of them is maths because I was good at it and because yeah, it is you know, bedrock that county's built on. But the other two lessons were drama. I was in every school play going because I always wanted to be the center of attention. So I, I loved performing on stage. So that's, and, and I do that, that's what I feel I do every day. I put on a show. And then the third thing is sports. You know, PE was a massive thing in kind of like making me the person that I am and, and, and really, you know, I draw on things that I, I do through sport all the time, you know, and, and you know, Ben, from playing sport, it's kind of, you know, I always say that, you know, when you go out onto a football pitch, you have to present yourself in a certain way. You don't walk onto a football pitch looking at the other team going, oh, they're better than us. So I'm going to look at my feet and be a bit shy. Okay, it doesn't matter if they're better than you. You never show weakness when you go out on that pitch. So you stand up tall, head up, you know, head high, you know, looking out there, showing confidence. And then it's only when you're 10 nil down after 15 minutes that they realise you can't play. But it's and it's again that that you have to have if you're client facing. You've got to be able to have that kind of confidence, even if you know that inside, you, you know, your stomach's churning. You know, having that mask and that facade, you know, something that, that you know, they're the three things that I, I think that I yeah, got most out of from school. And I, I can see why that might have annoyed some people that the confident doesn't seem to have a care and then walk away with an A. But um, well <laughs> done. So so end of A levels, you've got choices. You yep. chose to go to university. Yep. What led you to that decision and which subject did you decide would be right for you at uni? Um, I chose to go to university because in my day, um, it, there were grants 
So um, that there weren't tuition fees that need to be paid. So that there wasn't a financial uh, consideration there. Um, and I didn't know what I wanted to do at 18. I had no idea. Um, and so I thought three years at university to find out what I really want to do um, it is probably the best thing to do. And I'm asked there to continue to learn. And it's, you know, it's, although I, I, you know, I say I mess around at school, I enjoyed the school environment. I enjoyed learning. I enjoyed being that kind of, that, that kind of, you know, that kind of environment. So it is, yeah, just seemed a logical choice to me. And because I like maths, maths was the, it was the subject. And I looked at universities that I could do maths in and I thought, you know, I'm going to aim for the best university I can get to with the grades that I had. Um, and so I went to Leeds University. So I've got an email from Leeds. Um, I, I absolutely loved being in Leeds. Um, it's an absolutely amazing city to go to. So much going on there. Um, so I had three really, really exciting, really enjoyable, pleasurable years in Leeds. Fantastic. And so maths in Leeds, and from having a chat with you previously, I understand the first two years flew by. Yeah, breeze, really enjoyable. But you hit a bit of a wall in the third year. Do you want to tell us a bit more about the 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 the, the problems that you encountered and eventually overcome? There is a happy ending to the story, but but let's let's hear a bit more about your third year experience at Leeds Uni. Yeah, so the first two years, I did exactly the same thing that I did for, throughout all of the rest of my school career. Um, someone showed me how to do something. I went away, tried to do it. And as long as I could do it, um, I'd learnt it and then I passed the exam. Um, in, in my third year, you have to take, um, we had to take various different options. And um, I, I, one of the options that I chose to take was um, a, a mathematical unit called general relativity, which is the stuff that, that Einstein kind of like came up with and, and a lot of his work was based on. And it's, it's, I guess it, part of me was that, you know, that's the thing that you do is that you learn about amazing things about how the universe works and how it's put together and you know, the, the, un, unfolding the secrets of the world that we live in. Um, what I didn't realize is it's really hard and ridiculously difficult. Um, so I would have a lecturer that would teach me stuff and what I normally did was they teach me stuff. I do a couple of examples. I'd learned it. But what he'd do is he'd teach me some stuff. I wouldn't have a clue what's going on. So I'd try a few examples and I would be hopeless at it. Um, and I didn't learn it. And I didn't know what to do because I, I, I hadn't ever come across this before. And, you know, I said before, I love being able to write stuff down on a piece of paper and draw a picture of a car if I'm doing a problem with a car. But when you're dealing with, you know, time and space and distortions of the universe because of black holes i don't know how to draw that on a piece of paper to explain a problem so i was completely lost and really didn't know what to do um as you can imagine i i, I went went to the final exam and sat the exam without much hope um i have no idea what i wrote in that exam um and i, I came out of the exam knowing i hadn't done well um results came out um, and and I, I, I remember picking up the results envelope that you would get and knowing that I wouldn't have passed, but not opening the envelope because until I opened the envelope, there may have been an admin error and they might have actually marked it right. 
And I remember distinctly going back to my student flat with an envelope with my results inside. And I watched the entirety of a film called Fargo, which if anyone's watched, it's a brilliant film, but it will forever be etched in my mind as the failing my exams movie. Um, and afterwards I opened it and I had failed it. Now what that meant is that um, I hadn't completed my degree. So I passed other units, but in order to, to pass my degree, I had to pass all of the exams across the, the units that I took. So I, at that stage, didn't have a degree. How, how was that coming back to Cambridge, coming back to family? Um, well, I mean, a bit it, of embarrassment there? Um, yeah, it, it, to be, I mean, if I go through prior to, to sitting that exam, um, I had a job offer from one of what's now the big four accountancy firms, what back then was big five. So I had a job offer that was dependent on having a degree. Um, and I was, my expectation was I'd finish university, I'd go to the big city and uh, I would start my career in accounts working for one of the, let's say one of the, the big fives it was at that point in time. Needless to say, if you go to one of the big four now, and you've got a job offer dependent on you having a degree and you say, I haven't got my degree, is it still all right if I join? The answer is still no. So that job offer disappears. Um, and as a result, the only option I had was to go back home to where my parents live in Cambridge. Um, and yeah, it was absolutely horrid. You feel that everything that, you know, you have this plan and everything that you plan for is just evaporates, it's just disappears. Um, so yeah, I went home, had to tell my parents that I've been away for three years, had a really good time, but I haven't really at this point in time got anything to show for it. Um, you know, fortunately there is a process where you can, if you only fail narrowly, you have the ability to retake, but you can only retake the exam with the next group of students that are going to take it, which happens to be in a year's time. So I had 12 months that I could, you know, I, I, and in 12 months I would be able to retake. But until that point, it was, yeah, back to living with my parents. So it, it was, yeah, a difficult, shall we say, a difficult period of time. So, so by this stage, you'd, you'd obviously had the job offer with one of the, the big yeah. firms of accountants. So you kind of made your mind up accountancy was a yeah. career route you wanted to do. Did you think at that stage, it's game over now for a whole 12 months before I can get a foot in the door in an accountancy firm? Or, or what was your strategy? Well, I, I knew that I had to earn some money because I, you know, I, I knew that for a year I would almost certainly have to live at home um, and I needed to get a job doing something um, because my parents wouldn't let me sit around not earning money, living you know, <laughs> on their dime. Um, so I, I started looking at smaller local firms um and actually got a job with a, a small firm called called chater allen who i know ben you train some of their, their people now um and you know that they were prepared to recruit someone that didn't have a degree um again they, they they offered me a training contract but their training contract was okay we'll offer you a training contract but you can't start training for a year until we know that you're a graduate and you've got a degree so they offered me a role but there were caveats around you know i needed to pass my final exam to get a degree that's really interesting. So you did a whole 12 months working for them yep. without doing any of the accounting exams or study. Yep. Which I guess one is frustrating because you feel I've now got a year that I'm being held back from qualification. But in the long run, do you look back with, with kind of um, fond memories of that year? Um, yeah, it, it's the, the, when I find when I started studying for my accountancy exams, 
the bookkeeping exam was so easy because I'd spent a year building accounts from you know what we refer to as paper bag jobs. And so my double entry skills were really, really good. And I was entering into classrooms with people that were two weeks into their first job. Uh, and you know, I'd already built 50 sets of accounts from you know bare bone records. So it, it you know certainly helped me when I started, you know, in my finance in my accountancy qualifications. And, and I suppose working for that smaller firm meant you were a bit more varied in your job role. You were yep, probably doing absolutely. different tasks. And, and in my experience, it tends to be students at smaller firms that get a bit more client engagement earlier in their careers than you would do in, in a bigger firm. Did, did you yep. find that? Were you speaking to yep, clients? Absolutely. So I was speaking to clients within the first six months. Um, you know, I, I, I worked, I did accounts prep work, I did income tax work, I did some audit work. So I, I had a whole variety of different work that I carried out. So I, I got a yeah, very, very well-rounded accountancy qualification, you know, over my time there. But obviously you still had to get your degree before this firm were going to let you go on and do your professional study. So yeah. how did you dust yourself off? What was your strategy to get back into and go and pass what by all accounts sounds like a, a mind-blowing subject that you still have to get through at uni? Well, the, the, um, this is a kind of a story from, from this point that I share with quite a number of students is that I, I, it took me six months. So six months from kind of taking the exam through till about Christmas of that year. And what I would do is everything that I had done previously, I did again. So I sat at my, my parents' dining room table and I got my textbooks out and I made myself a lovely set of notes and that took me a period of time. And then I practiced questions and I stared at questions and didn't really know how to attempt them. And you know, I spent a lot of time being busy but not really achieving anything. And I, I, I said it was about six months of doing it. So for students that managed to do kind of what I did in this time period shorter than that, then you are far better than I am. Um, and it got to about Christmas and I was sitting there in my parents' house in Cambridge thinking, I'm going to fail this exam again. You know, I've still got six months or so to go, but I know I'm going to fail this exam again unless something different happens. And I've got to change what I do. And I don't know what to do. And I kind of had a, a moment where I thought, if only I knew someone that, that, that understood this stuff that could help me. You know, my mum hadn't got a clue. My dad didn't know. My brother didn't know. No one I knew knew about kind of theoretical physics. Um, so I, I kind of had this light bulb moment where I thought, you know, where can I find someone that's really good at theoretical physics? And it suddenly dawned on me that I was living in Cambridge, which I don't know if you realise, Ben, there's a pretty good university there. I, I was going to say, I, I thought you were going to say you had Stephen Hawking on speed dial eventually and you could just give, give him a call to, to give you some lessons. Well, I, I actually, I, I made a phone call to his department um, and I, I spoke to people in the Department of Theoretical Physics and I, I explained what I needed to do. And I said, I'm looking for someone to tutor me. So do you have any postgrad students? that are studying you know, in general relativity that would be prepared to help, that would be able to help. You know, I'm prepared to pay them money. And um, they did recommend, they recommended two people to me. And I said, well, which one do you think would be best? And then you know, they, they pointed the direction that I think this person would you know, be best for what you want. And they said, right, well, I'll give you his contact details. So I had to phone him up, so I didn't have email in those days. 
I phoned up his hall of residence and asked to speak to him. And um, we came to an agreement that I would see him one day a week. Um, and I ended up paying him for one hour's worth of work. I think the same money that I earned for a full day's worth of work. Um, and I, I went to see him kind of every day for you know, about four or five months leading up to the exam. And I, I remember really clearly the first time that I sat down with him, he went through an exercise that I still do today with students. And he looked at my textbook and he kind of randomly opened a page. So like open chapter 12 and he says, do you know what this is about? And I was like, no, I, I just blows my mind. I don't get it. And I'm sure you've had students that are kind of like, just completely closed. The answer to everything's no. And so he went back about three chapters, went to chapter nine. So do you get this? And I was like, no. And then he went back to chapter six. Do you get this? And I was like, no. And eventually he went back so far that he almost went to the front cover and said, can you read the front cover? Okay. And the moment that I said yes, was like, well, this is where we'll start. And I do that with students today. When students say, I just don't get it. I, 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 I want to get them to change a no to everything into a yes. And the minute you get a yes, I get it. That's where you start building from. And, and then every, every week for an hour, I would go and sit down with him. And it was amazing because I was sitting in these old lecture halls you know, at Cambridge University where you know, some of the finest minds of the, world, uh, the world's ever seen have studied. And you're right, Stephen Hawking is his university, you know, where he studied you know, and, and you know, it's the place where he'd lectured. And you know, this guy was teaching me you know, probably at a level that was you know, so beneath him. But um, over a period of time of him sitting down and talking through things with me and explaining things to me and learning in a different way, I gradually began to understand. And I've got really fond memories of walking with him from the university through the market square back to the, to the bus station and him talking to me about you know, planets warping space time. And I'm not just nodding and saying, oh yeah, that sounds like a load of words. I'm actually chipping in and commenting on it. Uh, and uh, it's, you know, to, in my mind, it's kind of like one of those montages you get in a movie where suddenly someone's learning over a period of time. And, you know, it, it, it introduced me to a whole different way of learning that I've never, ever experienced before. It wasn't just, this is how you do it, go away and do it. It, it was actually learning on a deeper level. Um, and when it came to the exam, um, I went back up to Leeds to do it. And it's the only time that I've ever had a feeling like it where I've walked into an exam and I, I knew that I'd passed that exam before I went in the door. It didn't matter what they asked me because I knew any question that they could ask me, I would be able to answer. And yeah, I absolutely smashed the exam. Um, and you know, I passed the degree, but it, it took me six months to realize I needed to make a change. And then it took me to actually work out what that change was going to be. And, and you know, for me, it was one of the most valuable lessons I ever learned. It, it's not, you know, it, it's not an exam I passed, it's an exam I massively failed. But I think if I would never have failed that exam, I'd have never have known that there's a different way that I can learn. And now, if you ask me to learn something, I can now pick up a book and I can learn from that book. I could never do that before. I needed someone to show me I would then do it, then I'd learnt. Now I can pick up a textbook and I can read a textbook, I can analyse it and I can learn from it. So it taught me a massive lesson and, and so much that I still rely on. And I couldn't tell you what any of the other exams that I did in that year at university were on. Wow, wow. Let, let's just backtrack though, because I think sometimes we're now getting on a bit in years 
but I'm thinking back to you as presumably a 21 year old yep. in Cambridge. It must have taken some guts and courage to reach out to a complete stranger at that point or a department at Cambridge University and say, I need some help. What, what tips have you got there? Because I see it with some of our students sometimes that you know they need help, but they are very reluctant to kind of reach out and ask for it. What, what gave you the courage to do that? Um, the fact that they didn't know who I was. Okay. Was it, uh, and it, it, was, it was the fact that, I, right, I could, I, I'm scared and, you know, I, I could, you know, I, it, this could be very embarrassing for me when I phone up. But I actually, uh, I actually made the phone call from a phone box that was down the road from where my parents lived because I didn't want them to do like 1471 to find out who was calling to call them back to say, you know, you just really embarrassed yourself. So I, I made it as anonymous as I could. And um, for, it, it's something that I, I, I do in a number of different, a number of different environments as well. I, I said I do it in sport, but you almost pretend that you're acting a character and say, right, I'm going to be this character right now, and this character needs help, and this is what he does. And he picks up the phone, and he makes a phone call. And you almost kind of separate it from what you're actually feeling. But yeah, it's, it, it, yeah, it's one of those gut-wrenching moments. But as I think I was tenching, what, telling one of my, one of my, one of my, um, my classes last week, that I think everything good that I've ever achieved or had has come from a gut-wrenching decision. You know, from something that you've really had to take a leap of faith into. Um, but yeah, it's really hard. And I think it would have been more difficult if I was asking someone that I knew that I needed help. And it, it's something that I've only become better at in recent years is being actually able to go out there and, yeah, and ask for help and say, look, I can't do this on my own. So obviously you got your degree. Yeah, that opened up the door. Did you stay with the, the small firm in Cambridge to do your professional qualifications? I, I did stay there to do my, my professional qualifications. Um, and um, that, I think that you know, they took a massive, massive leap with me because I, I'm not a typical, I wasn't a typical trainee because I didn't have the things that they were looking for. Um, they put me through ACCA. So I trained, I did all of, um, all of my ACCA exams. Um, I did pass all my ACCA exams first time, um, which, um, which yeah, uh, means a lot to me now. Um, and then I, I did actually, uh, I, I was offered another job whilst I was there. And um, I, I was offered a job by one of the big four. So one of the big four were, were looking for people that were nearly qualified, so part qualified, you know, virtually at that qualified position. Um, and I went for an interview. They offered me the role. And... When I went for the role, it's kind of like part of it, the thought process behind it was I can get back to that place that I wanted to be at back when I when, when I was when I was doing, when I was at university. I've got the role that I want, um, and they offered me the position, and I ended up turning them down um, because on the, on the one hand, I, I I wanted you know to to almost to say thank you to the firm that had taken a chance on me, and. At that point in time, I, I, I kind of I didn't want it anymore. I wanted something a little bit different. So it, it was kind of one of those things that, you know, I, I always tell students that, you know, you, everyone takes knocks along the way, but it's still possible to get to where you want to get to, you know, if you can deal with those problems. And yes, it might take a little bit longer, but 
if you work at it, you are going to get there. You know, if you've got determination, we talked last week about goals and goal setting. If you've got that goal and you work towards it, yeah, there might be a knock on the way, but you can get there if you continue to work towards it. Fantastic. We're getting some really nice comments in the chat box. I just thought I'd shout out a few people that are talking. So Noah's talking about your three-year qualification. You must have told students this in the past. Yep. Is, is the motivation to get your ACCA in three years, which is the quickest you kind of can do it realistically and would have been back in, in the days that you studied it, definitely. Is that born from the motivation you had from almost being held back a year when you couldn't move on to do it? Yeah, I think so. I think, I think definitely I, I wouldn't have had that determination if I'd have gone in um, straight from university because, you know, as I said before, everything came easily up until that point. And I, I would have just had that thought process of I'll turn up, I'll do the exam and almost kind of drifted through it as I pretty much drifted through education up until that point. Big shout out to Mel, who's a, a regular attendee and listener to these sessions. She works at Cambridge University, so some people listening might not know, but obviously Cambridge University need finance teams and we train quite a lot of them. And so Mel works at Cambridge University and is just saying what a fantastic place it is to work. And I would imagine being surrounded by all of those brains and all of that learning, it really is good. I'm always super excited when I get to go into the, the university and have a bit of an, an inside look around. And, and Carola's asking about um, no question being a stupid question. And I think that that's a really good thing. I always say that to my classes. I guarantee if you need help and you're sitting there thinking, I'd really like to ask for a bit more guidance on this, there will be at least one other person sitting in an, an average class that will equally need that help. And so um, it, it's finding that confidence. But I think Dave alluded to the fact sometimes it's harder to ask for help when you know the person you're asking to give it to you? I think it's difficult as well in a, in a, in a, for some people in a classroom environment. It's very difficult to say in front of your peers, look, I'm really struggling with this when everyone appears to be getting it. I think one of the beauties of, of, of what we're doing kind of remotely is the ability in that chat box to send a message privately. So if you have got an issue, and I've had that sometimes where a student has messaged me privately and I've just said, I've just had an anonymous message that, you know, someone wants to go through something and it's much easier to go through it. But I, yeah, it is tough, I think, to ask questions in front of you, but you're absolutely right. No question is a stupid question. You can guarantee if you're thinking it's someone else's. And, you know, I, I, I'm always very kind of upfront with people when I teach is that I make mistakes. And if you pick up a mistake, I am really, really grateful. So if you think something's wrong, I'm really grateful to you for picking that up. You know, I don't feel like you're trying to catch me out. I, I think that you're actually trying to make it better. So yeah, absolutely. You know, no, no question in my class is ever a stupid question. Um, we're getting near the end of time. I think we'll, we'll maybe leave talking about why you became a tutor to another session because we can yep. probably share some thoughts on that there. But I'd like to kind of end with a bit of a thought. Obviously, you understand time and relativity from everything you've, you've been talking about <laughs> at university. But when you were there in the moment, Dave, obviously a year seems forever when you were 21. When you look back now, and this is what sometimes I have to communicate to students, do you look back and think, I was held back? Does it ever seem as bad looking back now as it did when you were there in the moment watching Fargo, knowing what's in this envelope is going to be bad news and potentially a real challenge for my, my, my life in the foreseeable future? Uh, no, it, 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 I mean, it seems like a, a blink of the eye in terms of you know, how long that time was. At the time, as I've said, it was, it was earth shattering. You know, it, it was something that I felt I would never recover from. 
I, it, it was something that I felt had changed my life, you know, irrecoverably. But yeah, looking back, it's probably one of the best things that happened to me because I, I, I wouldn't have learned how, how to learn. I wouldn't have had that experience. It wouldn't have made me the teacher that I am now. Um, you know, I, I think if I'd have gone into teaching without having that experience, I'd have gone into teaching very much thinking everyone learns like I do. What's the matter with them if they don't get it? Whereas now I go in understanding, look, sometimes people don't get it. It happened with me at this particular degree qualification, this particular degree exam, but it happens with some people at AAT level two, it happens with some people at final level chartered exams. And I think everyone reaches that exam that is you know, their nemesis or, or that is challenging for them. And it's, you, know, it, you have to be prepared to adapt and change and in order to get through things. And as I've said on about four of these podcasts, um, it's not about whether you fail or not. It's about what you do as a reaction to that failure. So everyone fails an exam. If you haven't failed an exam, you just haven't done an exam that's hard enough for you yet. But when you do fail an exam, it's how did you address it? How did you deal with it? Did you do something different? And for me, it took something massive, something huge to change. Um, and you know, I changed completely as a person, completely as a student. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Dave. It, it's great that you're open, you're honest, you're sharing. I know that the, the students listening really, really appreciate that. So brilliant session. Thank you so much. Lots of people in the chat box are saying, looking back on hindsight, things happen for a reason. And, and you're exactly right. When you're there in the moment, you don't see it. But when you look back, there's usually a bigger picture that's kind of played out when you're in the zone, you don't see that happening. So thank you so much. I look forward to another session where we can find out your career from then on, from accountant to tutor lecturer, and then to owner and director for First Intuition. So we'll save that for a part two on Dave. What I thought we'd do is I, I wanted to ask you a few questions and kind of get a bit of your expertise. And something that we've covered a lot over you know the past kind of 20 plus weeks about studying and getting ready for exams and you know I, I think right now most people you know they know what they should have done and know what they should be doing and something that people have asked me about is um it, it's kind of about their careers and how you develop a career in finance um because you know for some of us it's or for some people it's you know we can do the exams we get through the exams but then you know how do we build a career in finance and you know you you've had a, a um i guess two great careers in finance now you've had one where you actually did a proper accountancy job and then you you've also built another fantastic career kind of within education so i thought who better to ask about building your your finance career and ask you, Ben. And I don't think we've ever done that. I don't think we've ever actually asked you kind of in-depth questions about kind of you and your journey and where you've been. So after kind of 20 odd weeks, Ben, could you give me a brief outline of your origin story, how you came to be an accountant? Cool. It's, it's, it's really nice to be on the other side of the podcast being interviewed by you, Dave, this week. Um, yeah, I, I'm sure... A lot of the people listening, a lot of students I've even taught probably don't know my journey into and through the world of accountancy and finance. So my backstory, I went to a, a, a local college in and around Cambridge, moved on to do my A-levels, 
wasn't entertaining a career in finance or accounting in the slightest, to be honest. I don't think it had even come onto my radar when I was at school. I had, like most people, a bit of career guidance from school, but it was quite limited. I don't think it was the sorts of stuff that we now maybe go in and do at school and college level to explain what it's like being an accountant, what the, the job can offer people. So I was completely oblivious to that world. And my head had been turned by a potential career in medicine, to be honest. Um, as soon as I said, oh, I maybe wouldn't mind being a doctor, I think I was very much railroaded into, well, if you want to be a doctor, you need to be really, really academically bright. You need really good A-levels to get into medical school. And I made some choices limiting, really, that path and then suddenly realised that wasn't the path that I wanted to pursue. So I picked A-levels not connected to accountancy, maths, finance. I did sciences. I did A-levels in chemistry and biology and geography and suddenly realised, one, I wasn't enjoying them. And two, I didn't think they were going to benefit me in my choices going forward. And that was a really dangerous position to be at my A-levels because it meant I wasn't then committed. I think that that's a message for our students. When you're doing your accountancy study, hopefully you've got that extra level of commitment to working a bit harder for your exams because it is on a path that you can see there is a, a clear roadmap when you get your qualification, how it's going to unlock lots of potential for your, your career. But in my A-levels, kind of uh, a couple of terms in, I was sitting there thinking, I've made the wrong choices and I don't really know how to get out of this now. So I kind of went through with it, um, thought about applying for university. But when I realized I wasn't going to get the grades for medical school, didn't really know what to apply for. So kind of deferred that decision. And like a lot of the times in my life, it was my good old mum that said the Easter before I was due to sit my A-levels, you need a plan for what you're going to do after this, Ben. You're not just going to kind of drop out and do nothing and she saw in the local paper that a firm of accountants uh, a, a regional firm to us in their, their smallest office very small office was advertising for an accounts junior to join their their team um cut out the job advert made me walk in with a handwritten letter and give it to a, a lady on reception and didn't really expect a lot but got invited in for an interview so that was quite nervy as a, an 18 year old going in for an interview, put a suit and tie on, but obviously did okay because they offered me a job. And that was, that was really good because they offered me a, a place before I'd even sat my A-levels, knowing it wasn't really contingent on grades. I'd got that one secure, which took a bit of the pressure off. So I did stay on at college, do my A-levels. Um, I got, you know, I'm a bit of a rock music fan. So my claim to fame is I got ACDC as my A-level grades. I got ACDC too. <laughs> I can't believe we got exactly the same grades. Um, which I wouldn't have got me into medical school anyway, not that I had applied at that stage. So I kind of promised mum I would start work with this firm of accountants in the late July, having finished my A-levels, do it for six months to a year. If I didn't like it, I was going to reapply to university the year after and, and see what, what I could go and do. So there's me, 18 years old, starting a career in finance, not really knowing what that career was going to open up. 
I didn't have a clue about an accountant. We had no accountants in our family. I know speaking to some students, they say, well, it was easy for me because my mum, my dad, my cousin, my nephew, something was already there in an accounting role. But I had no clue what I was opening myself up for. So I started with a firm, um, a, a regional firm that had a few offices, but I was in a very small office. So in my office, there was a receptionist. There was me as the trainee. There was one other member of chargeable staff, a manager and a partner. And that was our small little team. And I loved it. From day one, I really adored working there. I, I liked the people I was working with, which I think always helps. But I really liked the role. Um, I can vividly remember the first day in the office, they got me ticking a bank account. Um, people listening will know what this means, but maybe these days it's all done on a computer screen. In my day when I started, the bank statements were printed paper and I had to get a highlighter pen out and tick off Mark had they recorded correctly in their records what was on the bank. And I loved it. I loved it to the point that I went home that night and did my own bank reconciliation on my own current account just to kind of record it in my own little cash book. That is sad but just showed that I thought, actually, this is quite a rewarding job. This is something where you get a bit of satisfaction because at the end of the day, hopefully it balances, you can do your, your, your check-in and the reconciliation worked. So that was me set really to think I could make a career out of this, but, but it was very much unknown. There was no plan that I, I knew what I was going to do from then on. I was just in the game, so to speak. I'd got a role and I'd got a firm that were willing to support me and they'd taken a bit of a chance on an 18-year-old lad. I think there's, there's a couple of things there that, uh, that, well, first of all, the fact that you got exactly the same A-level grades as I did is, is just amazing because I'm proud of the fact that mine's ACDC as well. Um, and, you know, obviously, you know, I, I, to, to fair, I think those grades, just because of the initials, are better than getting four A's. <laughs> um, which is uh, I just yeah think amazing um, I loved it because you, you again won't believe this then but when I was studying for my A-levels when I started doing my A-levels I wanted to be a doctor um, and I actually spent a few days work experience at the Royal Free Hospital in London because my aunt works there so I went there and I, I kind of like shadowed people and I spoke to a lot of the doctors and the doctors were like giving me advice and saying well why is it that you want to be a doctor um, and they said that you know everyone says oh because I want to help people so if you say that in your interview you're not going to get in and I remember just thinking well the reason that I want to be a doctor is not, not really because I want to help people because I like solving problems uh, and that was thing that kind of like that I, I get out of what I do now I've got out of accountancy that kind of that I saw in 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 the medical profession so uh, I'm just like I was listening to that just because I've never spoken to you about you know you know what you wanted to do as a career when you were like 17 16 because I didn't really know you then um so that was that was a revelation to me and something there that, that also Mel who's in who's in the audience today has commented and said that she trained to be a chef um, and qualified, but hated it as soon as she passed, she quit. And now she's training, to, she's in a, trying to be an accountant. Um, and it's something that I think it's it, it, a very brave move to do at whatever age you do, is to say, what I was planning to do isn't right for me, and I want to change and do something different. Because, and, and as accountants, we kind of understand it. It's, it's almost the idea of like a sunk cost, isn't it? 
I've sunk so much effort and time and energy and sometimes money into my career or into something that I don't want to throw it away. And, you know, what we know as accountants is a sunk cost is sunk. You can't do anything about it. So you make a decision based on what you can change in the future, which is what you've done, which is what Mel's done. And, and it's something that I know that both you and I did partway through our accountancy career, which I'm, I'm sure we'll get to. Um, but no, I, 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 yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. And I hadn't realised some of those things as well. It, it always, it shouldn't really surprise me that there are so many similarities between kind of, you know, people that are doing the same kind of role. But it always does when I hear that. Okay, so thanks so much for that, um, for that input, Emma. That was, that was, that was really good. And then the, the next thing is that you followed your mum's advice. Um, my, my, you know, I, I love that because, you know, it's, you know, it's your mum. But I had a very similar thing. I had a, a dad that was super interested in what, in careers. And he, I mean, my dad didn't come up with sensible ideas like work in finance. He would come up and say, have you ever thought about being an undertaker? And it's like, no, I haven't. I've never thought about being an undertaker and I don't really want to go into that career. And he goes, well, what about working in sewage treatments and things like that? So it just would come up with crazy jobs, but they always wanted me to have some kind of plan, something to be working towards. Okay. And then, you know, I, I get that, um, that whole thing about ticking a bank. Um, and I think that everyone in the room, probably everyone listening to this, kind of knows that bit of excitement that you get as an accountant when something reconciles. Okay, if something reconciles, you know, you can sleep easy at night. You know, it's when your balance sheet balances or your cash flow statement reconciles. You know, and you, you think I've done, I've worked, I've done my work, so I've earned my money today doing that. Okay. Um, the, the, the bit you said, you, you kind of emphasised the fact that you put together a handwritten note. Okay. Now, is that because in those days you didn't have a printer and a computer? Or was it because your mum said it will look better if you handwrite a note? Yeah, I'd, I'd like to say it was all from my, my own idea. But no, it was it was good old mum again. We had a printer at home. I could have printed it. But she said, I think it will look better if, if you handwrite it. It's a bit more personal. And so I did. And I'm pleased I did because I think that that fitted in with the culture of the firm. They wanted a person, not a, a generic typed response. And, and I think it really helped. Subsequently at the firm, I'm going to let you into a little secret now. I found out after the event because I, I stayed with that firm for, for 13 years that we'll talk about my, my career development with them because it was a great place to work. But, but many years later, I found out when I applied for that job, there was only one other application that year. So I know I know this goes against what a lot of the listeners are probably facing, where at the moment there is quite high applications for every single role that's out there. But I was incredibly lucky that it was me versus one other. And I don't know what tipped the balance in my favour, but if it was that handwritten letter that I submitted how thankful am I that I listened to mum's advice again? So again, I, I just think it, it shows a bit of a standout personality. What, what I've always tried to do is stand out a bit from, from the crowd, try to be memorable, hopefully for all of the right reasons, but, but try and show a bit of personality. It, it has never done me any harm in my career journey to kind of say, this is me, that there's not a pretense, this is not an act, and hope that people kind of take that as a, a sincere and hopefully a, a kind of person they would like to work with. 
Yeah, I, th I think something you, you said there, which is, uh, I, I think, really important is, and I, I try and emphasize this to anyone that, that wants career advice, is that if you, if you and I, at, if 17-year-old Ben and 17-year-old Dave put their CVs on the table, they'd be the same. Okay, they'd be ACDC. There might be slightly different schools. There'd be a different address in the top line. Um, we might have both had Saturday jobs and a few interests here and there, but our CVs have got nothing. They're identical. Okay, and so if you put those two CVs in front of a, a recruiter, the recruiter is a flip of the coin between those two CVs. So the only thing you've got is what else you submit. And that, to me, is always what you put in that letter. If your letter says, here's my CV, okay, versus someone that's put the time and the effort to explain why they want the role, I'm giving the person that explains why they want the role the job. Okay, and that's instantly what I'm thinking. And it's something that really frustrates me is when people tell me that I can't find a job and I've applied for thousands of roles. Okay, and then I say, well, have you tried applying for a role in a small practice? And they say, oh, should I send the same covering letter I sent to all the other people? No, no, not at all. Every covering letter should be tailored to the individual needs of the job that you're applying to. That's how you get spotted. If, if I think that you're sending me the same generic covering letter that everyone else is getting, I just think, well, you haven't, you haven't even looked at the job. You're just randomly applying for every job that's out there. So take the time to make it different. And I love the handwritten letter. Okay, if someone applied to me with a handwritten letter, that to me would make me look at it and think, right, it's a bit old school, okay, but I like it, it's different. It's showing me that you've got some kind of personality and something different about you. So yeah, I, I, you know, e even all those years ago, Ben, when you did that, I imagine it was different to a lot of people that just thought, oh, I'll do some kind of generic types letter. So anyway, we are, we're now, you're now employed, you're now loving life in accountancy. And you said that you, you, stu you stayed um, with your firm for 13 years, which is a big stint, okay, long stint with one employer. Um, do you want to just talk me through kind of how your career developed there? Certainly. So I was lucky enough that that was 1999 when I started. And so I was there for the millennium bug that came and, and never really happened. But the, the best thing that happened in that first year was that they suggested I started studying and they offered me the chance to do the AAT qualification. So I was in a very lucky position there that my employer was going to subsidize my study and that that's something else to look for if you can possibly get yourself into an employer that is known for training, for supporting students. That makes your study journey much more palatable financially and also from the support you get from colleagues and, and bosses at work. So I was incredibly lucky that they, they financed my AAT qualification. In those days, any AAT current students listing, my AAT exams were paper based. So I had to go to a physical exam hall and they only held the exams at fixed sittings, open up a, a book and you had to write your answers into the book. But I did those. Um, I studied correspondence. So I did distance learning for my AAT um, without online video lectures. It was literally just a box would arrive at the office and we would unpack it and there would be three or four textbooks. And I was allowed to go to classes for some intense revision before those sittings. But in those days, there was no provision for that in and around Cambridge, where I'm based. I had to travel into London. 
So that was early starts. I can vividly remember getting up early to get on a train at six o'clock to leave Ely train station. Anyone um, from my part of the world in, in Cambridge here to get the train down to King's Cross and then a tube across the King's Cross to Holborn in London to go to an AAT class for the day and then do that for, for a few consecutive days. Um, that went really, really well. I thoroughly enjoyed studying AAT. I think it was clearly a great choice for me at the start of my career. It was very well-rounded, but it was also achievable for me at that early stage. And I think it got my confidence back up, having walked, uh, sitting A-levels, but knowing I hadn't reached my full potential. I think the AAT assessments helped get my confidence back to where it, it should have been. Um, it wasn't all plain sailing. I actually failed one of the AAT exams. I failed that the equivalent now of the, the budgeting decision and control. Regular listeners to the podcast will know that management accounting is not my forte. And that was borne out in the exams. But I resat, I passed. And so now I have been with the firm for two and a half years and I am fully AAT qualified. And the next challenge they presented me was, Ben, we would like you to continue and do the chartered qualifications. And they gave me the choice. They said, you can either do ICAW or ACCA. And I know that's another big choice that a lot of our students and a lot of our, our listeners will have been confronted with in their careers and study journeys. I picked ACCA. So I actually went on to study ACCA exams. Um, looking back now, because I'm asked a lot, from students which one should I do I can't give you a definitive reason that I chose ACCA over ICAW I think a lot of it came from other staff at the firm that were, were in a similar decision and I think a lot of us came to a, a group consensus so I'm, I'm going to name check some people in case they're listening to the podcast hello Sam and, and Matthew and Stephen who were all my kind of year at, at college and we all kind of chose ACCA together so that was nice a bit of camaraderie some colleagues that were doing the same qualification at the same time is, is not a bad thing and I have to also say my now wife was that the year behind me but she'd also chosen ACCA so I, I met my wife at, at college doing ACCA exams as well so that all worked out incredibly well for me but I was still working for that, that very small office. So that small office was great, but I, I was coming around to the idea that any progression and promotion was going to be limited in, in a smaller office environment, unless people above you leave. And we had such a great team that people weren't leaving. I was kind of rapidly running out of, of places I could go. But luckily, working for a larger firm, they had other offices and like a lot of things, it started with the chance for a secondment. So I was offered, would anybody like to go and have a three month secondment over to the bigger office that was in Cambridge, the centre of Cambridge at the time? And I kind of put my name forward and said, yeah, I'll go and do it. And so I went three months thinking, well, three months, it will give me a chance to see what it's like working in a different office with more people going from an office that was very, very small into an office of, of 50, 60 people was, was different. But... I absolutely loved it. And they obviously loved what I was doing because after the three months, they offered me a full-time position there to go as an assistant manager and go and start managing a team in that office in their corporate department. Awesome stuff. So when when you kind of got that call and it's something here that, that 
I can see Mel's put in the chat chat box there where she's saying that um, she's been working in uh, in a particular role, working two departments, and she, she's used to that they believe me believe in me more than I believe in myself sometimes, and I I can really relate to that sentence because you know I I you know it, it's taken me a very very long time to you know actually think that I'm kind of capable of the of, of the work that people are asking me to do and I always kind of have that little bit of a a thought about oh should I really, am I you know am I really doing this or I'm kind of really just pretending and sometime I'll get found out how did you feel about because you know you're still quite young then aren't you still kind of like you know very early 20s and you're now being told to help manage teams of people did that come easily to you or was that something that, you know, did you kind of have that almost imposter syndrome feeling? That's a tough one. M managing people is a different skill set. I think from, from one perspective, technically in the world of accounts, my background from that early start in a small office meant I had experienced lots of stuff. So one of the good things of being in a smaller team is you actually get involved in more of the stuff going on. So I had done elements of payroll. I had done elements of personal tax and corporate tax. I'd done accounts. I'd done management, accounting, bookkeeping. I'd done VAT returns. So I think from that experience, I felt competent in the tasks that, that my team were undertaking. I think where I felt a bit nervous was actually in managing a group of people but before then it was kind of I do it for myself and someone else reviews the file so if there are mistakes they're going to be picked up by someone else now I am in the position and you're exactly right early 20s but I am managing other staff I'm having to find work for them that sometimes is incredibly stressful trying to find work for other people without doing it yourself but being there to supervise and I'm sure like a lot of people, I've been caught up in the, the tightrope of how much do I get involved and how much do I take a step back and be there if people need to come to me. Um, then you start getting involved in doing people's appraisals, working with them on their career plans. And that, that's a completely different skill set than the, the technical accounting stuff that, that we are trained to do in, in the world of accountancy. So I think not every accountant can become a manager, if I'm honest with you. I think that there are skills there that you do need to learn. I was incredibly lucky that I was doing it in a very supportive firm. I had had some good managers that had managed me in my early time. And so a lot of my technique came from kind of copying the good elements of other people. And I've never been ashamed to admit I copy a lot of the stuff that I do from good things that I've seen other people doing. And I make no apologies for that in my career. I've kind of got away with it so far of, of, of trying to nick the good tips and the good advice that, that other people have, have offered. Yeah, I, 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 I feel exactly the same. It's, it's, that old, it's the, the whole kind of Oscar Wilde quote of genius steals, isn't it? And, and it's, you know, you take the great things that you see and, you know, draw inspiration from them and use them as influences and kind of like channel the things that they taught you in the right direction. I think sometimes it's the, um, it's, it's recognising that, that that's not a bad thing. 
Um, and now I, I, I embrace it. I mean, I, I positively go out of my way to try and find things that I can steal from other people. You know, that, that's why, you know, my bookshelves are filled with, you know, biographies of people that have done amazing things, because if I can learn something from their stories, then that's going to help me. Um, and something that um, I mean, I, I would just kind of say to Mel, who's, uh, you know, who's kind of saying that it looks like she sometimes doesn't have the full confidence in her own abilities is sometimes it's worth just sitting down and thinking who actually out there could do what I do? Who's got the knowledge of the business that I work for? Who's technically got the knowledge? Who's got the ability to do the work and meet the deadlines and produce the reports that I produce on a regular basis? And you'll probably come to a short list of one person and that's you. And you'll realise, well, actually, out of all the people out there that I'm aware of, I am the single most qualified, best person at the role that I carry out. Okay, And if you, you know, actually seriously do that, you'll realise how valuable you are in that role and why people have got the faith in you that they actually have. Mel also asked, did everyone give you, anyone give you a hard time because you moved through the ranks, maybe above older members of the team? That, that's a really interesting one, Mel. Um, no, certainly not anything that I, I, I had directly to my face. They, they might have talked about me behind my back, but I hope they didn't. I think a lot of that comes from kind of almost echoing Dave's point that the proof of the pudding is in the tasting. The fact that if anyone, if, if there was a, a memo come round who would like to volunteer for this, I usually put myself forward where other people took a step back and so eventually over time, you've kind of proved your worth by all of the additional stuff, the extra responsibilities you've taken on, that, that at that point, people have not really got any defence against why you've been promoted because you've kind of earned the right for that promotion. So it, it's meant I've, I've kind of put my name forward for some stuff that when you then take stock and think about it, you think, oh, I'd really wish I hadn't have said yes to that at this stage. But from an early age, I was doing things like presentations at work. I was training other members of staff. I was always doing things with a smile on my face. And I think that's another big tip. I think enthusiasm and positivity also is another thing that gets you recognized. And so then people start realizing, I hope they realize, Ben is a nice guy that will always do his best. And that goes a long way. And, and then if other people say, well, why is Ben getting these opportunities? There would be a list of reasons why. Well, Ben put himself forward for this. And don't forget, Ben did this uh, as, as an extra. All of those things then really just mean you are in a position that you have earned. And, and I, I'm a great believer that everything I've got in my career has come through hard work and dedication. Um, it doesn't just happen. You have to push yourself and you have to put yourself forward for things. Yeah, no, I 100% I, I agree. Um, and I think that in any line of work, and you, I'm pretty sure you've probably seen people like this where, where, you, where you trained and you've seen them throughout your career. You've had people that are, you know, that, that have the same job year after year after year. And yes, you start there and you're in a junior position and you finish and you're a senior position to them. And you know, I, I had it myself because I had people that would say things like, oh, Dave, you've changed. 
You know, when you started here, you were fun, okay? And now you're not fun anymore. And um, it, it's true, you do have to change because you evolve and someone else has not evolved. And, and I always think that that whole, whole thing of, um, of, you know, you've changed is always thrown at you as a criticism when it, it's not a criticism, okay? It, it's what you should be doing. You should be evolving over time. Um, and and it, 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 it was re- I was really struck by um, a quote that I saw. Um, I don't know if you've seen this, Ben, but on, um, on Apple TV, there is a documentary about the Beastie Boys. And um, I, I'm a massive fan of the Beastie Boys. I love the Beastie Boys. And um, the, it was all because one of the Beastie Boys, MCA, um, died um, a few years ago and they did this show about him. And um, they were asked questions about um, don't, there are questions about were they hypocrites and were they hypocrites because now they very much promote equality and you know they very much fight for for people well, fight for people's rights as you'd imagine um and they said but a lot a lot of your early records there was some really quite nasty quite misogynistic lyrics um, and don't you feel in that you're being a bit hypocritical now you're speaking out against it and the comment was that um and i loved it was that i'd rather be a hypocrite than be the same person forever so I'd rather change and evolve than be stuck being the same way forever. And I think that's exactly the same in your career. You have to evolve and you have to change. Otherwise, you are stuck being the same forever. So that's, again, if you haven't seen the, if you haven't seen the movie, watch it. It's, you know, as, as a Beastie Boys fan, it's one of, the, one of the best movies that I've seen this year. It's absolutely phenomenal. Um, and, and I think we've got, we've got a few people kind of mentioning the same thing where people have, of Maisie said, I constantly doubt myself because I feel so young and still look very young for my age. And I feel like people are not going to trust what I say because I'm not so confident. Um, and Karen said the confidence has been her problem and self-doubt uh, and it's improved since sitting an exam. I felt that I was faking it forever, pretty much. And that there was a, there was a massive moment in my life that made me kind of reevaluate that thought. And it must have been towards the end of my 30s. So we're probably looking at about four or five years ago. And I was invited to this big ICAW bash. And one of the head people at the ICAW who had kind of like OBEs and stuff like that, he introduced himself to me and I said, hi, I'm from First Intuition. I run the office in Chelmsford. Um, and he said to me, he said, what do you think about the future holds for education and the way that people are going to be taught and I started talking for a minute about my thoughts about kind of blending technology and classroom elements together and he said that's really interesting and I kind of walked away thinking that guy is like a really senior chap in a massive organization and he's actually taking on board things that I'm saying and I'm and it was that that was a light bulb moment where I suddenly thought actually I'm pretty good at what I do and I actually understand stuff, but it's, it's taken me a long, long time to get to that level where I actually feel that, you know, I'm not pretending and I actually do know some stuff. And I think it's really common amongst, amongst most of us as, as accountants. So Ben, we, I, th- I think that, that kind of brings us up to you're, you're operating kind of a, a, a kind of a junior management level. What happens then in your career? So at, at that point, I um, make a choice to specialise like a lot of people do. 
So I threw everything into working in the corporate department, specializing in audit. Um, audit was a fantastic grounding. So for those of you that don't really understand audit, that's probably why you don't love it. But I was going in and running teams of auditors at lots of different businesses. So that was quite varied um, on, on a portfolio that I had. I had everything from care homes that we were going in and doing audits for. We had um, other charities, so animal rehoming charities. We had manufacturing businesses, a couple of big furniture manufacturers. We had retail businesses. And I was traveling a lot. I was going out. I was supervising teams on site which was great. And I have to say, I, I loved it, but there became a point where it, it was very intense and that there didn't seem to be um, much let up from it. It was kind of ongoing. It was incredibly stressful managing other people, lots of reporting deadlines, lots of, of compliance stuff. And I, I think I got to a point where a lot of people get, I realized there were some days at work that I, I wasn't enjoying but there were some days at work that I really was enjoying. And when I look back now, the days that I, I was really enjoying back then were days where I was doing things like presenting. So I used to run a series of, of breakfast seminars where I would go and, and talk a bit like tutoring, but, but speaking to an audience. I would do a bit of the internal training for staff. And those days I really, really loved. And that got me thinking, I think I'd really like to be a tutor. At this stage, I've been promoted to a senior manager. So I'm, I'm holding quite a high level management position. But I really thought I would love to be a tutor. And I thought back to my time as a student and, and regular listeners and joining us of, of the podcast will know our, our friend and colleague, Gareth, Gareth John. He had taught me towards the end of my ACCA studies. And I always thought Gareth seemed to have a fantastic job. He got a job where he, he was paid to kind of stand up, to teach people, to share some stories, some experience. But, but I really liked my time in class with Gareth and he stood out as a tutor that I thought, yeah, I would like to get a piece of piece of that action. I'd always stayed in contact with him. So um, that was when social media was first coming in. But, but Gareth was a bit of a, a front runner. He'd got a LinkedIn account. And so I'd linked up with him. I was also um, friends with him on Facebook and every so often he would post, we're looking for another tutor to join our growing team at First Intuition. And I've kind of seen these and I thought at some point I'm going to go for it. And then it comes back to something else we've touched on tonight, that kind of nervousness of quitting something and going to something completely different, unknown. And it was a time then that we'd got married, we'd got two small children but Ellie, my wife, had returned to work and it felt like if there was ever going to be a time to do it, it was got to be kind of now. So I went for it. And I have to say it was another brilliant decision to kind of go for that. I, I went for a job as a tutor, understanding that it, it would actually be a pay cut. I took a pay cut to come and be a tutor. But what I did get in return was a, a work-life balance and something that I just felt so passionate about that it made every day going to work seem like the best day I could possibly be having. And I absolutely adored it. And, and similar to that feeling on the first day of doing the bank reconciliation, right back then when I was 18, my first day teaching a class, I went home and I was on top of the world. I was absolutely buzzing 
and just thought that has rekindled some kind of connection in me. I really enjoyed my time as a student and it reminded me a bit of that time as well. I liked the atmosphere in a classroom, in and around the building at first intuition, seeing the students. And I thought, this is this is brilliant. Um, and I loved it. So, so that was coming up for nine years ago that, that I then joined first intuition and started taking my first class because I've come in as quite an experienced manager. I was able to, to teach some quite high level papers right from the start. So we usually start tutors off at a kind of pace teaching some of the lower papers and moving up. But I think one of my, my classes that I taught in the first term was the advanced audit and assurance paper. But I felt I got the credibility because if anyone challenged me, I've been a senior manager in audit for, for many, many years by now. I've done lots of experience of audit reports and different testing. Um, but yeah, that was a big tip. Stay connected with people because I'm confident if I hadn't have stayed connected with Gareth on, on LinkedIn, I wouldn't have spotted the opportunities. He wouldn't have been aware of, of me on the radar as someone that, that would hopefully make a good tutor and, and had a credible kind of background and, and CV entry into it. So don't underestimate your connections. Always try and connect with people that you come across because those connections will be very, very powerful potentially going forward when you're, you're looking for something else. I think you're right there. It's, it's, uh, I, I know that a lot of people at entry level roles kind of um, are, are concerned because they can't get into a role because they don't have experience. I, I think sometimes uh, as you as you progress, you don't even become aware that a role might be there because sometimes a lot of jobs aren't advertised. You know, and it is a case of, you know, I, I know that because, you know, I, I was in a similar position in the, the Gareth Gareth. I worked with in the past, but then he recruited me to join First Intuition on the basis that I would like to work with Dave again. And I don't quite know what I want, what, what I would like Dave to do, but I'm going to have a chat with Dave and try and see if there's something we can do where we can work together. And that, that's where I am right now. So it is, it is you know, it's, uh, I'm only at First Intuition because I had those connections. And it always kind of saddens me slightly when people leave a job and they leave on bad terms because of the way they kind of fracture or break up that relationship. It's, it, it's far better to leave every role on good terms if you possibly can. Even if you really hated the work, it's better to go away and thank people for the experience that they've given you because you never know when you're going to come across them in a, in a different walk of life. And I think you're right, staying, maintaining that connection with them. And then and I, I realise we've only got about two or three minutes before you need to go, Ben. But one thing that I that, that really dawned on me as you were talking there is that, I, I, as I said at the beginning, your story at the beginning with ACDC mirrors mine. But also in terms of joining the teaching profession, it's exactly the same as, as it was with, um, with me as well. I, I, I was working as a, as a financial controller and I was earning a nice salary and I was well you know, on course to, to be earning quite substantial amounts of money. And I, I took a, a quite a significant pay cut in order to, to take up a career in teaching. And like you, I pretty much skipped home on my first day of teaching. You know, it, it, it was kind of like I'd won the World Cup because I thought surely a day at work cannot be this enjoyable. And I think there's a huge amount to be said. You use the, the term kind of work-life balance. You know, and, and for me, if you've got the right job that you love, it's not a case of balancing it. It's a case of 
you don't live for the weekends. You live for every single day of the week. Saturday and Sunday are brilliant, but Monday is equally amazing because you get to do the thing that you love doing. And if that means that I don't earn as much money, I would much, much rather live seven days a week than live two days a week and earn loads of money in the other five days and hate what I do. So it is, you know, it, it is, uh, there's a lot to be said about you know that kind of evaluating what you want to know, doing the right job for you, not the job just because it earns a few more pounds. Definitely, and and I think it, it makes your career that much more longer lasting. I I am confident. I've I've only although I applied for internal promotions, and I've been lucky enough to join FI at a team that it's been a time that it's been growing. So I've kind of moved through the ranks here as well to to the point I am now. But I've only ever. Um, formally applied for two I've only ever worked for two different businesses because I, I think I enjoyed what I was doing so much that I didn't need to leave that employer to go and find it from somewhere else if that makes sense but I'm a great believer in taking those internal opportunities if, if you get the chance to do something whether that be a secondment whether that be a chance to go and shadow someone else or work in a different department the more that you can do that just rounds off your different experiences, that you see staff, that you make connections, that's going to pay dividends in the long run for your own experience, for your own job satisfaction. I think you're very similar to me, Dave. We, we, we probably get bored quite easily, so we like to keep moving forward. I've always been one at first intuition to say I'll teach any subject that, that you need me to teach, whether or not I've taught it before. It would it would fill me with dread if I thought I would only ever teach two or three papers for the rest of my days I like the challenge of, of doing new stuff and I think that makes your job interesting and if you can be interested and enjoy a job that's really the perfect combination well I hope you enjoyed that episode myself and Dave are going to be back with some live forums we're scheduling them to start back up on the 7th of September so look out for emails coming out with how to register for them. Thank you very much. <laughs>